We're continuing with our uh, journey with Jesus as we walk with him uh, through the eyes of uh, the gospel writer Luke, and as we head towards Easter, and uh, we get to this pair of parables, uh, this pair of stories about prayer. Uh, I suspect that there are many things in life that can only be properly appreciated and even understood as a participant rather than an observer from the inside rather than the outside. For me, I reckon fly fishing is one of those things. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. I simply don't get, even begin to appreciate what anybody sees in fly fishing. Standing up to your knees in cold water for hours at the time, throwing something that doesn't even look very much like a fly, certainly no fly I've ever seen, at the river or the water on a bit of nylon, and nothing happens. And then some more nothing happens. And then some more nothing happens. Now, friends I've got who love fly fishing are passionate about it. They look at me with horror when I refuse to go with them, when I don't want to get part of it. I suspect they would say to me, Richard, you've got to try it. You have to do it to understand it. You can only understand it as a participant, not as as an observer. You have to get it from the inside, not from the outside. But I suspect that's true of most things in life. Certainly of all the big things, appreciating what motherhood is like, what being in love is like, having a best friend, but also appreciating the heartaches and the heartbreaks of life. There are plenty of questions, problems, experiences, complaints that simply don't give way to basic logic, rational conversation, that simply can't be explained but have to be experienced, where we have to participate rather than pontificate. We have to be in there rather than from the outside looking in. And without pressing it too far, I want to say that I think that that's where the balance of the Bible's perspective on prayer lies. Now, the Bible never pretends that there are no rational questions about prayer. The Bible never pretends that there aren't things about prayer that are really difficult. The Bible doesn't cover over, for example, the fact that we really struggle with the fact that when we pray, we often end up with the problem of unanswered prayer, seeming to experience God's ignoring us or not doing what we've asked. And those times when prayer is answered, we then struggle to know what is coincidence, what is answer. How does God interact with our world? How is he involved? And then we begin to think about it a little bit more, and we have this huge question of prayer. Well, why on earth would God listen to me anyway? If I'm one person in a world of 7.3 or whatever it is, billion people, in one tiny little planet, in a... I can't remember the way the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy puts it, and the, the western spiral arm of the solar system spinning out in, the, you know, in this near-infinite universe. Why on earth would the God of the universe, who's made space and time, why would he listen to the concerns of my heart? And it's not that the Bible ignores those questions, nor even that it never tries to give us some answers, but that what it does most of all is simply say to us, get praying. Understand it from the inside out. Participate. Don't just observe. And of course, the problem is that prayer is difficult. 
There's so many reasons why we don't pray. There's so many things that drag us away from this activity that the Bible would say is the most thoroughly human thing you can ever do, and yet at times feels the least natural. And I want to suggest that these two parables are on that end of how the Bible approaches prayer. That they aren't parables to explain away the problems, but to help us deal with the roadblocks. To help clear away some of the rubble that stops us actually praying. And to help us understand what holds us back. I want to suggest that the first parable of the persistent widow is Jesus' call to say to us, when it comes to prayer, you give up too easily, too quickly. Instead, persist with prayer. And actually, I think Jesus is saying here, it's the only logical approach, that it makes no sense to give up too quickly. And I want to suggest that the second parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, is about our confidence. Jesus is saying it's not simply that we give up too easily because we think it's not going to be answered. It's actually that we lack the confidence to come to God believing he wants to hear us at all. So let's hear what these two parables might have to say to us. Look, the place to start is to say both of these parables are fundamentally in complete mismatches. In both cases, they reveal a situation which is akin to putting a little year seven kid up against Anthony Joshua, uh, the, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, or putting the All Souls cricket team up against the England T20 cricket team. That's probably a closer match, I don't know. We're pretty good. Um, it's a complete mismatch. In the, in the second of the cases that we'll come to, the Pharisee versus the tax collector, uh, within the culture of the day, they are as far apart on the, the religious and the moral scale in people's worldview as they could possibly have been. We'll come to that. But the persistent widow and this unjust judge really were the, the David and Goliath of their day. The judge held all the cards, all the power. If you were a judge in those days, you didn't just rule a courtroom, you ruled the law, you made the decisions, you chose who was guilty and who was innocent. But worse than that, or more than that, you even chose who came before you. You could accept or deny somebody's access to justice, let alone the delivery of that justice. And the widow? Well, the widow had nothing to offer. She didn't have money, and in those days, that really mattered. She didn't have status or position. If you're a woman, you were far enough down the pecking order 2,000 years ago. If you're a widow, you were even further down. She had nothing with which to persuade the judge to listen to her, except what today we would call pester power. She pestered him. I mean, that's all she does. She pesters him. She makes herself a thoroughgoing, pestering nuisance. Why? Because what she is asking for matters. It matters far too much to give in. She's not going to simply say, well, this judge has no reason to listen to me. I'm not going to bother. She just keeps going because it matters. Now, the point that Jesus makes is a pretty simple one. He says, you know very well that God isn't like the unjust judge. You know that the God whom you worship, the God to whom you pray, isn't the sort of person who thinks, I don't really care about justice. God cares passionately about justice. He's not the sort of God who says, I don't really care about you. He cares passionately about you. He's not the sort of God who doesn't have time for you. 
He's got all the time in the world. And yet, says Jesus, we give up. We stop asking. We don't even come close to pestering God. We maybe ask once. We go, no, no, I'm sorry for asking. Or he's not going to listen. Or maybe I shouldn't have asked. But, says Jesus, that makes no sense. It's entirely illogical to give up praying for something that matters deeply to us is simply nonsense. Because, says Jesus, look at this widow. She keeps going even though she has pretty much no hope of being listened to because it matters to her. We are coming to a God who is utterly unlike that, who is not an unjust judge but a loving Heavenly Father. Why on earth would we stop? Why on earth would we give up? Now, we may have lots of questions about prayer. There may be lots of things I want to tell God that he should have done differently. He and I will sort that one out when we get to heaven. That's great. But in the meantime, why on earth would I stop asking? Why on earth? It can only be, logically, if I actually think that God is worse than even the unjust judge. It can only be that. Jesus says, in the midst of all our questions, in the midst of sometimes our pain, don't stop asking. Persist. Don't give up. It makes no sense to give up because God is not an unjust judge. He loves us. We go on asking. But then we have this other parable. It's one that the um, people listening to him would have known very, very well, this situation of people going to pray. Now, in those days, you, you prayed pretty publicly. Prayer was a, a public act of, uh, at times of showing the world who you were and where you were in the, the sort of pecking order, the ranking order of religion. And the Pharisee goes into the temple and he prays loudly and publicly. Thank you, God, that I'm a good person. That makes no, I mean, it's not the sort of thing we even imagine anybody doing. But actually, in that context, it was sort of seen as okay. He was a good person. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the religious leaders. He was, a, he was somebody who really tried to keep God's law. It was one who would have been able to look down his nose at what he describes as robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and worst of all, in that particular context at that time, and if there's any tax collectors here, it doesn't mean today, tax collectors. Tax collectors in those days weren't just the lowest of the low because they took people's money. Actually, it was the fact they kept some of people's money in their own pockets, and worse than that, they were collaborators with the Romans. They were traitors, because the Romans were in the invading army. And he says, this Pharisee, well, God, it's such a good thing I'm not like them. And then he talks about this tax collector who stands at a distance, doesn't even look up, beats his breast in that ancient sort of sign of, of sorrow and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the point Jesus is making here is that there are times when we don't pray because we think that other people are going to be of more interest to God than we are. We don't pray because we think we haven't earned it. Maybe we don't pray because we've never prayed before, and actually, well, God is simply going to go, well, I don't know why you're asking me now. You haven't asked me over all these years. I've had people over the years apologise for coming to church because they haven't been before, or they haven't been for some time. As if somehow God's going, well, I'm sorry, you've missed it. If you didn't come as a child, or you didn't come in your, you know, your teens tough. The whole point of this parable is that it doesn't work like that. God doesn't rank people's prayers. God doesn't rank people. 
by the behavior, the goodness, the badness. Why? Because actually, in Bible terms, we're all in the same boat. This Pharisee had missed the point entirely. And in fact, by missing the point, he'd made his situation even worse. He thought that all his good deeds had put him at the top of a pile. And that arrogance had shown that he didn't get it at all. He didn't get the distance between him and the God who made the universe. And he didn't realise that in God's eyes, he and the tax collector are both simply off the chance to be children of God. Not ranked according to deeds, but ranked according to love. Ranked equal to his heavenly father. Now, of course, the danger for the tax collector is that he will be so aware of his sin, so aware of his need for mercy and forgiveness, so aware of how far off God's requirements he is, that he won't even, to put it this way, with the way it's in the passage, that he won't even look up to heaven that he'll stand at a difference, that he won't even pray. And although there are some of us who maybe think a lot of ourselves, my guess is we're more likely to go that way. We're more likely to think, do you know, God's not even going to listen to me. I know my own heart. God knows my own heart. Why on earth would he hear me? Actually, the point is God loves to hear us. There is not a person on this planet whom God does not love. There is not a person on this planet whom God does not long to respond to his love. There is not a person on this planet for whom God in Christ did not come and live and die and rise again. There is not a person on this planet that God wouldn't happily spend eternity sitting with, talking with, enjoying their company. That's the way it goes. It doesn't make prayer easy. I don't understand why God does what he does and doesn't do what he doesn't do. I'm not God. I'm going to keep on banging away at that door. I'm going to keep on asking. I'm going to keep on um, pulling it apart, wanting to understand. But actually, the Bible says most of all that I shouldn't stop praying. I need to persist and not give up too easily. Why would I? Why would I stop if it matters to me? I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep on pestering. I'm going to keep on saying And I'm certainly not going to stop praying or not even start because somehow I'm not good enough or God's not interested. If God's interested in the tax collector and the Pharisee, then he's interested in me. There are some things in life that are best understood, best explored from the inside out as a participant, not simply an observer. And prayer is one of those things. We lose nothing by praying. It's a wonderful experiment, a wonderful adventure, a wonderful exploration. And potentially we gain everything as we spend time with our Heavenly Father, as we leave ourselves open to being loved and to loving in return. And of course we pray not just with words, sometimes with tears, sometimes with heartbreak, and all the time with our lives. And one of the ways that we can pray is in this act of communion that we're going to move towards. But by coming and maybe kneeling or standing at the rail, putting out our hands or bowing our heads for a blessing, whatever it is, actually we're coming to the God who loves us in Jesus. And we come simply saying to him, you know what I need, I'm not going to stop asking. Let's pause for a moment and then let's share communion together.
I'm going to invite you, please, if you're willing and able, to stand. Let's stand. These words at the beginning of our communion service remind us of the the basis on which we pray. Let's use these words together. The Lord is here. His spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give thanks and praise. It is right to praise you, Father, Lord of all creation, because in your love you made us for yourself, and when we turned away, you did not reject us, but you came to meet us in your Son. You embraced us as your children, and you welcomed us to sit and eat with you. In Christ you shared our life, that we might live in him and he in us. He opened his arms of love upon the cross and made for all the perfect sacrifice for sin. On the night he was betrayed us up with his friends, Jesus took bread and gave you thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His body is the bread of life. The end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His blood is shed for all. As we proclaim his death, as we celebrate his rising in glory, send your Holy Spirit that this bread and this wine may be to us the body and blood of your dear Son, As we eat and drink these holy gifts, make us one in Christ our risen Lord. With your whole church throughout the world, we offer you this sacrifice of praise and we lift our voice to join the eternal song of heaven. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. We're going to sit to pray together the prayer that Jesus taught his friends, the disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. We break this bread to share in the body of Christ. Though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. So draw near with faith. Receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ which he gave you and his blood which he shed for you. Eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. I'm going to ask those who are helping to serve communion to come and join me uh, right now. And uh, while they come up, um, thanks Linda, thanks Rosalie, thanks John. Uh, While they come up, just a reminder of how we do things here. The first thing to say um, is that we invite all of those who are um, baptised Christians and used to receiving the bread and the wine uh, to come and to join us at the rail and to receive in that way. And uh, if you're somebody that would uh, value a gluten-free wafer rather than uh, the bread, if you come to my end of the rail. For the children amongst us and for anybody not used to receiving communion, we'd still love to invite you up to the rail. And if you keep your hands well down, 
when you come up, whether you're standing or kneeling, is absolutely fine either way. We'll know to pray a prayer of blessing for you. As each of us does so, whether we're receiving a blessing or the bread and the wine, each of us comes as an act of prayer, saying to God, whether we're sure of him or not, whether we know what we want to say or not, simply saying, I'm going to persist, I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to be confident that you want to hear me.